Good morning. Good morning. Hello. Hello. It's coming on. Yes. Am I on? Yes. Sort of. Sort of on. Coming on. Yes. Guru, we're on. There we go. I can hear it now. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome. It is so good to see you all. And uh, it is Durban heat on us. We are here. Summer is here. The cold is gone. The hot and the heat and the humidity is with us. And this week has seen us in that space. But um, really excited about this morning, I think. And um, if you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, that would be fantastic. Whenever we are out and we come back home, one of the things that I absolutely love doing together with this community is worshiping. And um, this morning was one of those moments, also another moment again of just phenomenal worship, just of us getting before God in worship with all of our hearts, with our voices loud, and just praising God, and just, I don't know, just phenomenal, phenomenal time. I just absolutely loved it, and uh, really love being at home. We were at, last weekend, we were in Richmond with Rich Lynn's church, and uh, very special time there, ministered, had a, I think we had a significant impact there. And it's always good when they say, please, you gotta, we want you back next year. You know, please, can we have a date? You know, that's a good sign. Not like, thanks so much, so we'll check you and you we'll call you when we need you kind of thing, you know. But um, anyway, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. This is kind of a part three, and next week will be a part four on this text, and I'm going to read a little bit, a little bit, go a little bit further into chapter five up to verse 10 or 11. Brothers and sisters, we do, not want, no, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who fall asleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's Word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of an archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will we be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I love that last little phrase. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's carry on in verse chapter 5, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as, a la as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should not surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the, you are, you are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. 
Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Nothing good happens after 12 at night. Those of us that are out jawling, just so you know. Good word right there for the 20-somethings and those just finished school. Nothing good happens after 12. Not just a good Ed Sharon song. It's good advice right there from Ed. I was also there. I did think things happen good after 12, but they don't. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and, and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. I love both those portions of those kind of paragraphs are ended with, now encourage one another. Use this to encourage one another. And uh, what I want to talk about today is the coming of Jesus. This is a massive topic which over 30 minutes on a Sunday, you're not going to get to any kind of grips with. And, but I'm going to kind of introduce some th thoughts and ideas and get to some big ideas away, because the way we, we need to be encouraged by the coming of Jesus. We need to be encouraged by the second coming of Jesus. And this particular text is often used in, uh, in a system of, of kind of second coming uh, theology called the rapture. Now, most of us sitting here today have heard the word rapture, and most of us sitting here today have watched or read of or been introduced to left behind movies, um, have kind of seen a whole bunch of stuff. Or I remember going to youth as a young person and watching one of these left behind movies where a guy was mowing the lawn, and another guy was flying an airplane, and the next thing, the wife goes out to see the guy mowing the lawn, and the lawn mower is just sitting there, and there's no person there. And the person that was flying the airplane is no longer flying the airplane, and the airplane's one of those. And I thought, oh my God, I've got to give my life to Jesus. I don't want to be left behind. And uh, so there's, there's a kind of a culture around that kind of a second coming of Jesus, which is one of probably four very big systems of the way Jesus comes. So the way theology works in the, in the second coming is there's kind of systems, or, and it's based around big words like the millennium. Has anybody heard of the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ? It's in Revelation chapter 20. And it's, and it's based around things called the tribulation or the great tribulation. Who's heard of the tribulation? And everybody's, ah, the tribulation that started and Jesus is coming and all the rest of it. We kind of get into all those things and we're looking for times and dates and we're wanting to know when the rapture is and we, we don't really know what we're talking about. But we kind of got all these terms floating around and we're kind of using them and half believing them and not really sure and... We kind of want to bring a little bit of clarity this morning around that. But next year, what we will be doing is we'll be doing a six-week series on eschatology. We will deep dive into all of those things so that we will have a clear understanding of what they mean and how they work themselves out, etc. But when you look at this text, 
You'll have a look there. So it says there, it, and remember, remember Paul is addressing a pastoral concern. This is, he's primarily not actually even addressing a theological concern here. He's addressing a pastoral concern where people are saying, what happens if Jesus returns and I've already died? Will I miss it? And he's saying, no, you're not going to miss it because all those that have died will come down with him. And he will meet those that are alive and they'll be caught up to meet him. And that's what he's saying. You're not going to miss this. Those that are dead, you won't miss it. Those that are alive, you're not going to miss it. If you're in Christ, you're not going to miss it. The big idea is this. Get into Christ. Put yourself into Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Then everything's going to be okay. Because when he returns, that's all you need is him. Whatever the theory is, whatever the, the process in between his first coming and his second coming is, all Bible-believing people believe this, even those that believe about, about the rapture. As you can see, I'm not a big rapture person. If you do believe in the rapture, that's fine. Believe in the rapture, but there's some things that you must make sure you also believe, which we'll get to this morning. But if you believe... Bible-believing believers, people that believe, as long as you believe that Jesus returned and he's Lord and Savior, and he will one day return, and when he returns, sin will be dealt with, unbelievers will be judged, believers will be judged and rewarded, will be rewarded, and he will bring a new heaven and a new earth. That's what's going to happen. And we will be with him forever. Those are the two big bookends. What happens in between, a little bit less clear. And people have arguments about that. But everybody that believes, even the, the rapture stuff, they believe that. So that's the big thing. When, when, we, when Jesus returns, one of the great ways that we can be encouraged by the return of Christ is that when he returns, friends, we'll be with him. will be with him. And when the king of king returns and he comes to do damage to the kingdom of darkness and to deal with the, with the enemy and to deal with and to judge and to put to death death and to put to death sin and to ultimately deal with all things, you are with him. And we'll live a life of fullness in eternity with him. That's the, encourage that we, that's the encouragement that we have as we put our hope in the coming, the second coming of Jesus. But this text here goes on and it says in verse 16, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, the voice of an archangel, the trumpet of the call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, see, it's going to be a very loud thing. When Jesus returns, there is loud, this is the loudest day in history. Everybody knows about it. There is archangels speaking. There are trumpets sounding. There are commands from heaven happening. It is full on. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up. Caught up. That is where we get the word rapture from. We get the word rapture from a Greek word, a Latin word. But it's from that Greek word, caught up. It means to be caught up. I'm going to get into that. That's where we get the word. That's where we get the word rapture from. Together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 
so that we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let me get to my notes. Before I get distracted. So, when you read that text, it doesn't indicate two comings or two phases of the second coming of Jesus. So let, let, me, let me start with this. There are four kind of different views of the end of time. Maybe you could put that, uh, that slider, please. Whoever's, I can't see the shepherd, whoever's there behind the... Well, there's three main ones, and then one kind of divides into two. There's, there's a system of end-time theology called premillennium, premillennialism. There's amillennialism, and there is postmillennialism. I know that these are big words, but don't get intimidated by them. Millennial means thousand. So pre-thousand means Jesus returns pre-millennium, pre-millennial, pre-pre the thousand years. A-millennial means that there isn't, it's, a, it's not a literal thousand years. It believes that when Jesus came, the millennial started, and when Jesus returns, the millennial finishes. It's, it's, a, it's, not, it's, not, a, it's not an actual a literal a thousand years. It's a figurative thousand years. And then post-millennial means that the, the, the thousand, Jesus will return after the thousand-year rule. So, uh, and, and kind of next week, I'll go into a little bit more of that so you have a bit of a, more of an understanding of that. More this week, what I want to talk about is a version of post-millennialism post where post-millennialism was divided into two parts. Historic post-millennialism, which is the kind of the oldest version of of end time thought. Just, and can I just say, just because it's old doesn't mean it's right. Just because the King James Bible was one of the first oldest Bibles doesn't mean it was the best translation. Now you're standing on a whole bunch of, don't you tell me my, my King James Bible was not the real Bible. Friends, the, 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 the newer versions of Bibles have got more rely on better manuscripts than what they had in those days. So it's just because it's the newest doesn't mean it's the best, but, but it is one that was formed, and I'm going to talk about that next week, why, why these and how these things came into being. But post-millennialism was historic post-millennialism, but then there was another thing that started, another part of post-millennialism that started in the 1830s. So it's quite a recent view, and it was actually started in, a, in, a, in the kind of, let me get my facts right here, in the Irving, Irvingite renewal, where Irving was, a, was somebody that was kind of trying to bring back the, the gifts back into, uh, into the Catholic Church. And he started kind of encouraging the apostolic and the prophetic gifts. 
And at that time, a lady by the name of Margaret MacDonald, who received uh, an amazing healing and the gift of tongues and the gift of vision, prophetic things, and she ha- came up with this idea of the rapture theory. And this kind of rapture theory came up, got caught, uh, kind of caught on with uh, Darby, who was a theologian, and then Dar- Darby's views kind of got more popularized in the Schofield Bible, and particularly in the Schofield Bible notes. And the Schofield Bible had huge influence at that time. But before 1830, this view was never, ever heard of. And so this dispensational premillennialism was birthed in the 1830s, which is where we get the tradition, the the kind of so-called rapture theory that we would traditionally know or have heard of popularized in, in circles that we watch movies in. So the idea with this is that the rapture was not the second coming of Jesus. Well, the second coming of Jesus was, there was, a, there was first, the, the, the second coming of Jesus was when he comes ultimately, but the rapture was uh, the first part of the second coming of Jesus. And one of the texts that gets used is this 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when Jesus comes down into the, cl- uh, to the clouds to meet his people, and then what he does is he comes down, he, he gathers all the, gathers the church to meet him in the clouds, and then he returns back to heaven with the church for seven years over the tribulation. Just don't worry about all that. I know it's confusing. It is very confusing. That's kind of partly why you think this is very confusing. How do you understand this? So... And, and, and the, the, one of the texts is he comes to meet them. Now, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that word meet, it's used three times elsewhere in the New Testament. And every time it gets used, it gets used in the, in the way that meet would get used in our traditional sense. So if somebody comes to your house to visit you, and they come to, you go out to meet them, you don't go out to meet them and then get back in their car and go out with them. You, when they come out, they come to visit you, you go out to meet them, to welcome them, and then you carry on back into your house. That's the sense in which it's always used. But for pre-trib people, pre-tribulation, before the seven years of tribulation, post-millennial, or pre-millennial, sorry, pre-trib, pre-millennial, it's very confusing, as I said. It's, it's, for them, there is this idea that Jesus will come down, meet the church in the clouds, the church will go up to meet him, take all the believers from Pentecost till, to that date, will go up, meet him in the, and then take him, give them resurrected bodies, and then go and live with him somewhere in heaven, in the clouds, for seven years while the tribulation happens. That, that coming of Jesus is called the rapture. Listen, even if you don't believe that, the coming of Jesus is also called the rapture. There's just not two second comings of Jesus. So you can believe that. That's fantastic. That's not, I don't believe that. And I think it's, very, it's biblically quite indefensible, to be honest. But again, this is not life or salvation, not going to put your salvation on what you believe at the end times, 
but it does have implications on how we live. So kind of this is, I'm very sparsely, sparsely trying to give you some ideas of what this, the second coming idea of pre-trib or dispensational premillennialism is. Jesus comes down, he takes the church up, the church then enjoys the marriage supper of the Lamb with their resurrected, with their resurrected bodies for seven years while mayhem is happening on the earth. And the reason why that they believe that, and there's lots of texts around which they say, is because the church should never ever suffer the wrath of God, which is true, so that actually God preserves the church, because it's under the grace of God, from the wrath that's being poured out over those seven years. And then after seven years, the church comes back down to earth, and with Jesus, that's his second coming, which is the second coming of Jesus, and then there's a, a millennial reign of Jesus. That's why it's pre-millennial. There's a thousand-year golden age that ensues. That's the end-time kind of picture. So the church gets raptured out, gets taken out before the suffering really happens. Hopefully that's clear. Now, like I said, the problem with that view, in my opinion, is that it severely affects the way that you live now. So not only do I feel that it's biblically indefensible and I'm putting no form of defense and I'm not even representing it fully here and I'm just giving you kind of some really bullet point ideas of what this means that can connect with some of your thinking. But this kind of two-stage return of Christ, I think, is not right. One of the big emphases around this thing and one of the reasons why I don't think it's right is that it separates the church and Israel. So please do understand this. The whole point of this, in fact their big point, is part of the reason why the church has got to get out the way is because God wants to deal with Israel. And so during those seven years, a remnant from Israel gets saved during the Great Tribulation. And then when Jesus returns, there's kind of a wholesale salvation of a, a lot of people get saved at the return of Christ. So there's a whole, there's a, there's a, there's a whole separation of the church and Israel, which is why we get big Israel theology. Now, as I've said before, this dispensation, the reason why it's called dispensation is because they, leave the, they believe history is broken up into dispensations. There's a church age and then there's a kingdom age. And when they say kingdom age, they mean an Israel age. They believe the literal promises of, of Israel from the Old Testament follow through and God is wanting to fulfill them, etc., etc. There's a whole teaching around that and... But one of the big things, friends, is it almost belittles the church as being this parenthesis that God has. So God's history goes through, or oh, oh, Israel stumbled, okay, let's throw the church in quickly so that we can get Israel back onto track. Okay, now that Israel's getting but let's take the church out so I can deal with Israel. This is the kind of idea that 
gets towards. So basically what we're doing is a parenthesis, is kind of God's second idea, second plan B. Which when you read the Gospels and you read Paul, it's completely not. So these are, those are kind of two big things that kind of are, I think will, we'll, uh, I'm not going to go, I haven't got time to go into all the things, but the implication of this, the implications, let me just jump to the implications. And you're going to have tons of questions and you're going to Google and you're going to, that's fantastic, do that. And then come next year to the eschatology course. The first implication of this kind of theology where there's this two-phase approach to the second coming of Jesus is that it takes the resurrection body and takes the resurrection body off of earth and puts it somewhere with Jesus, eating with Jesus, kind of in, on the clouds somewhere which I suspect is why most people think, don't think new heavens and new earth. When in fact God created a resurrected body to live on a new heaven and a new earth, not somewhere in the clouds with him. God doesn't, this body is going to be created anew for a new heaven and a new earth to live out our days. We are not gonna float in the clouds we're not going to be in some ethereal place in the cosmos. We are going to be in a place that God has redeemed and restored and recreated for us to live in eternity with Him. But this time it will be with Him, His presence. The man Jesus you will see in His likeness as He was when He lived on earth. You're the presence of God with us in that place, living out all eternity with him. You see, our resurrected bodies were made for living on earth. And one of the implications, I think, is that somehow it diminishes the resurrected body. The second implication, I believe, is it diminishes our ability to suffer and persevere through hard times. If you believe when it gets tough, God's going to take us out before it really gets tough. It, 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 if our plan to deal with hardship is rescue and not perseverance and walking with Jesus and, and an ability to have faith and to push through, friends, we are so seriously doing ourselves a disservice. And we constantly resort to, oh God, please just come, come back. Jesus, please just come back. Now listen, Jesus is gonna come back when he comes back. But our, our solution to our hardship is not Jesus coming back. Our solution to our hardship is more of Jesus, more of his presence, more understanding of who he is, and thinking of the big picture and the hope that we will one day have when he does return. It's not rescue. And take us out of here, Lord. Beam me up, Scotty. One of the implications of that 
system of end time theology is it gives us an inability to suffer and to persevere. The danger of misleading believers into thinking that when things really get bad, they will not be here to have to face them. The third implication, severe implication, is it questions God's keeping power when things get tough. See, one of the big, one of the big theological um, points in that system is that God's wrath, God's, God's, during those seven years, is God, you, you, God's not going to be able to protect you when he pours out. Because that tribulation is not the tribulation that you just go through. It is the great tribulation. It's God's wrath being poured out in their system. And so part of it is, is there's this idea that God can't keep me when things get tough. But all you've got to do is go back to the Exodus and you realize, no, when things get tough, God kept his people. When the angel of death came, just paint the door frames. I can keep you. I can hold you. I can protect you. Even what, no matter what you go through, my hand is on you. You go through tough times, my, I never leave or forsake you. And although the rest of the world is under judgment, actually, and me, I will never, I will, you are not under my judgment. I will keep you and protect you. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but I will keep and I will protect you. The keeping power of God comes under, under question. Number four, it creates a passivity in us, which is why I don't like it at all. Because there's no reason to have to do anything if we're going to get beamed up. And then come back down again on the other side. And all the different views have different views of the way that gets worked out. All the different schemes of end time processes have different views of the way that gets worked out. But friends, we are not called to be passive. We are called to be a prophetic people that take what Christ has done for us and bring it from heaven to earth. So there's not meant to be a passivity. We can change things. God has given us authority, has delegated us authority to heal the sick. Can I just say this dispensational thing comes with a cessationist thinking, means the gifts are gone. It's, it's, it comes with an authority. It comes with a, with a sense of actually I can make a difference. I'm not called to be passive. I'm, called, I'm not called to be passive and just wait for Jesus to beam me up and for Jesus to take me out. Actually, I'm called to make a difference with my life. I'm called to persevere. I'm called to love. I'm called to take the authority that Jesus has given me and to release it into the realms that he's put me in and to the spheres that he's put me in so that I can make a difference. So that God's name, Jesus' name, will be revered wherever I am. Whether that's praying for the sick or seeing people saved or whatever it is, whatever that means, doing social justice, whatever that means. The fifth implication that is not good is the separation of Israel and the church. With the church is this parenthesis, as I mentioned. 
kind of the churches, God is the parenthesis and, and is created to bless Israel, which is really God's plan. The other version of that, the opposite side of that, is a thing called replacement theology. Where, 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 and I'm, I know I'm getting deep here, and I know I'm losing some of you. It's, it's called replacement theology. At the core of replacement theology, it says this. It says God is done with Israel. Israel is finished. God can't, Israel can't be saved. That's at the core of it. When in fact Romans chapter 11 says, no, 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 no. God's not done with Israel. Don't, don't forget that. The only reason why they're not here is because they lack faith. But when they find faith, they're going to be God's, God's plan is still intact. In fact, he says, you Gentiles, you get out into the world and Israel's going to get saved. It's like, get out into mission, get on with it. So there's this kind of idea on the one side, it's replacement theology God's done with, 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 um, with Israel. On the other side, in this scheme, is Israel is everything. Israel's everything, it's the clock, it's the everything, it's the land, it's the everything. When in fact, Jesus is everything. And Jesus, God's plan is Jesus and his church. And there's this grafting in, and although Israel is significant, in fact, it, it, there is something of our mission and our eschatology, eschatological views that are attached to Israel and what God's going to do there. I understand that. But it's not the, the emphasis where that, it's kind of, that's the real plan of God and the church is the parenthesis. But that's what that rapture theory does and says, just so you know. So when we think rapture thing, that's what it believes. You might not know that that's what it believes. That's why I'm talking about this. So then you've got to say, well, then what's better to believe than that? Which is why we're going to do some teaching on it. And lastly, number six, the implication is hope. Hope. Friends, we've got to have hope. Both those passages end with hope. Encourage one another with hope. Jesus is coming. And whatever your view is of that arrangement of that end time, Jesus has come and he will be coming a second time. And if you still like to believe that there is another rapture and there's a, there's a two-phase part, to, there's two parts to the second coming, etc., that is, that's not going to affect your salvation. Set you free, be free. Just because I don't believe that doesn't mean you don't have to believe that. But make sure that we're not passive. But make sure that we're on the front foot. Make sure that we're full of hope. Make sure that you understand as the church, your plan A in God's plan. And that you've got a mission and we've got a job to do. And it's not about us, it's about the world. And one day, friends, Jesus will return. And our job is to prepare a bride for him. A bride that is without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. It's to prepare people that is ready for him. Our job is to go and build that bride, to fetch the unsaved, to fetch those that don't yet know Jesus, and to bring them in, and to disciple them, and to bring them back, get them ready to meet this bridegroom. 
so that on that day when he returns, he finds a bride ready for him. That's our job. That's the big picture. And our hope is this, friends, is that he will return and we will be with him. And he will return with all our loved ones that are in him. And all the pain that we've suffered through these years, and if you've been through World War I and World War II, and no matter what you've done and where you've, you've, you've come from, you've been a, a refugee from some country and you've been in war-torn lands and you've, you've had an absolute, you think, how can this person be alive still? I want to tell you, there's a coming of Jesus when all of that gets wiped away. And there's an incredible hope of life after death with him in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Let's stand. Father, I pray. As Paul was speaking to these Thessalonian believers and trying to encourage them to have hope as they were being persecuted for being believers, that, Father, we would be a people of hope, Lord. As Taryn preached last week about hope, I pray, Lord God, that you, no matter what our end time views are and where these things go, and whichever way we slant, this way or that way, or how we go, Lord God, at the end of the day, Lord God, you've given us a job to do. I pray that you do away with passivity in our hearts and you replace it with incredible faith and hope for the future. that one day we will meet you face to face. I thank you for what you're doing amongst us in a world that seems to have lost its way. And every generation of believers have said exactly the same thing. But Jesus, you still are our hope. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for bringing us near to you. And Father, thank you for empowering us and sending us on a great mission into the world that needs your name, that needs your presence, that needs your love. Father, commission your church. Release us, Lord, with great hope and faith in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Wonderful.